Hello everyone and welcome to Avantika Designering Series or ADS as we like to call it. Every week on Wednesday, we feature design and technology leaders who share their professional journey, their thoughts on their domain of work and designering where the world of design and engineering meet. Make sure you follow us on social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter. And with that, let's continue with your show. Design cannot exist without research. Designers have been indulging into various practices to make complex systems as humanized as possible. In today's time, usability matters more than availability of a product or system. These inferences are gathered from various research methods followed by designers. Thus, it is very obvious that research is the backbone of an effective design and a lucrative business model. Today, we have with us an industry lead, Saswati Sahamitra, who is a research lead at WhatsApp Incorporation. She focuses on the development of business through strategic planning backed by effective inferences from research. Her past experiences include her working as a research expert with organizations such as Uber and Google. Her diverse background makes her understanding of various aspects in product development and business exceptional. While we discover our journey of designering, let's get into a conversation with her on research decoding businesses. Hello, Saswati. Welcome to Avantika Designering Podcast Series. Thank you so much for joining us, for recording the show with us. Thank you, Rohit, for inviting me. I'm excited to have this conversation with everyone. Excellent. So, Saswati, you are currently working with WhatsApp. And if you were to talk about the current pandemic situation, I mean, at least for me, I gained most knowledge about COVID, what's happening around in my locality, in my city, in my country, most of it through WhatsApp. In fact, amid the pandemic, um, information has been uh, the biggest currency and WhatsApp has played one of the most important role in informing netizens of the of, of, of the country, in fact, in a global way. What I also came across ha- is that WhatsApp partnered with the WHO for accurate health information so that fake news can be curbed across um, across the globe. So what's what's your uh, view on it? What's how 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 do you do it? I mean. You know, um, as you rightly said, during COVID-19, WhatsApp did play a really interesting role in kind of thinking about how people, how our users come to know about authentic information. Because, of course, every day we were seeing in the news, like a lot of like just like misinformation coming out from different sources. And um, it was very important for us as an organization to make sure that, you know, the the content that you were getting on WhatsApp actually reflected the truth of what is happening in the world 
And WHO is a really good partner for that. In different countries, we also did different variations of it where we partnered, for example, in Singapore with the Singapore government, in India as well, with different state governments as well. So for us, it was really just about trying to connect our users to the most sort of reliable, authentic information we could find for them. And it's been an interesting way for us to see how people use some of that information, how many people kind of like came back and asked for more questions. And uh, that's positive. I think that that gives us like, you know, some sense of positivity that if the approach was right, people would use WhatsApp, not just to kind of share like good morning gifts and so on, but also use it for relevant information that makes their lives better. Interesting. So, Saswati, before we get into your area of work, we wish to know a lot more about you. You did your BA, then MA in English. How did you stumble upon the world of research, world of design, which is user experience? So, can you can you share with us your entire journey from CKS uh, to WhatsApp? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I basically, as you said, studied a bachelor's in English literature in Kolkata a while back and then followed it up with a master's. I think at that point in my life, I was hoping to become like a lecturer, like a lot of people around that time. And um, I think if I think about it, what was interesting was um, as I was studying in both Kolkata and in Mumbai for both those degrees, the common thread, which perhaps I kind of connect my career back to was um, one is that when you study literature, you do read a lot of different types of critical theory, you do undertake actual sort of the foundations of research for your papers. So the how to do research and how to think about a problem and how to question an area, I think stems from some of that background. However, like in terms of kind of getting into user experience, I think that was really interesting because around 2006, I moved to Bangalore and I already had an MPhil in literature at that time. And I pretty much got like a random call from someone called Ila Vashisht um, from CKS. And I definitely say I owe my career to her, which is she was like, it seems like on your CV, you are a researcher. Do you think you'll be able to do research? And I was like, sure, tell me more. Um, what, what exactly do you have in mind? And I turned up for that interview. Um, I had no idea what they were going to ask. I had no idea about what user experience research was at that point. And um, having turned up, I was asked a lot of questions about, can you do statistical analysis? Can you do like, you know, other kind of literature reviews? And I was like, I can definitely do a lot of literature reviews because that's what my course trained me in. Uh, but in terms of statistical analysis, I think I can learn it while I am on the job. And um, I think that opened the door. So even like around like 2006, 2007, I basically learned everything about research on the job by observing other people, by making mistakes, by, you know, learning how to frame questions better. So pretty much it was just like hands on, like learn by doing and from there, I think CKS was a great experience because it kind of exposed me to a lot of different industries, a lot of different people, a um, lot of different 
problem. So if I look back at that time in my career, on one hand, I was trying to help Nokia build out relevant sort of like information experiences um, for India. I was helping Asian paints figure out like, you know, their next year's annual color trends. And then at some point, like I was doing a little bit of work with Boeing, trying to figure out the next decade of flying in India, and then working on vaccine delivery in India with the Gates Foundation. So I thought that was just like those two to three years was like a fantastic exposure to a variety of industries, a variety of ways of doing work, which really set me up for success. I mean, I definitely owe like that wide exposure a lot of my success. So since 2010, I moved to Germany. I then did a little bit of consulting research for like my own self as I was kind of figuring things out. And then in around 2012, I said, like, I think the gap which I have in my own kind of experience was understanding how businesses operate. So I understand well how research can help be help businesses be innovative, but I'm not sure I fully understand because I was on the client side um, to sort of like, you know, like what is the decision that's being made inside an organization? So I did a course in uh, like market research and behaviors, and um, that really helped me get exposed to a lot of European businesses at IE in Madrid. And that was fantastic because I think more than methods, what I took from that course was like what support did businesses need? And since then, when I graduated from that course, I joined Google and then Uber and then now WhatsApp. So a lot of it, I think, has been sort of like learning the core skills, then understanding how you use those core skills to help businesses. And then, of course, leveraging a lot of my own past background in storytelling, effectively communicating human needs, which literature does very well, to bring it all together in the career that I have today. That's really interesting because, you know, this is probably one of those times when I've come across a speaker, um, you know, whom I'm hosting, who's learned things on the job. And by the way, when you mentioned Asian Paints, I connected to it because I also started my career with Asian Paints. You spent nearly six years of your career in um, social impact space. So from social impact to all these commercial side of businesses, how did that transition happen? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that transition has happened because um, I think social impact has been pretty much a huge part of my journey, so to say. Um, so if I really think hard about it, I got exposed. I mean, if I go back like really long time back, I think doing something for society was something that my parents, my grandparents really pushed for, even if it was simply like teach you know, what you're learning in school to another person. So I think that has always been a part of my life. But where it started escalating and becoming a bigger thing is when I was doing my master's and MPhil in uh, Mumbai, where I got involved with a lot of NGOs um, who were trying to help local communities self-serve their own problems because you couldn't rely, you know, always on the government to come fix things for you. And what I realized at that point in my life is that um, here is a new thing called a mobile phone, which is giving people an unprecedented amount of access to information and control, which they've never had before. 
So that theme has continued, I think, in my career, which is how do I use the different technologies that are around at whatever point in my career that is to enable greater sort of access to information and greater inclusion, which can then lead to financial well-being. So if I look at my work at Google, it was about how to enable like, you know, a lot like larger parts of the world to search for information better. So what we used to call in those days, the next billion users, and how did Google search have to sort of adjust itself, develop itself, to account for these people. Now, having done that, my move to Uber was about, well, here's a time when you have the internet in your pocket. Can you find yourselves jobs that will you know, make you a source of livelihood? And then with WhatsApp, I come back to that same social impact, which is like, here is a channel that you have in front of you where you can do a lot of things on it. You can entertain people, you can run a business on it, you can connect with your larger community. You can use this channel in very many ways. So the question is, how can you do it more creatively that satisfies something in your own needs? So I think the social impact has been like a sub layer of a lot of things that I have been doing through my career. And I can see myself just do more of that in more impactful ways going forward. Well, this is really getting interesting because you nearly answered my next question where I was going to ask you, how do you connect the dots but uh, you know between the different domains like technology telecommunication consumer durables beverages and social impact all the areas that you worked with and the way you've ex- you know expressed it right now is 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 a is a beautiful experience yeah i mean uh, to kind of answer that question just slightly i think the reality is that um, you know all these industries are ultimately trying to deliver some value to their customers right so to figure out what is the best way to do that that's kind of my job you know saswati well i did my management education i studied marketing research it was more statistical analysis and processes while working now with a design school i hear and understand the human centric product development it's it's more qualitative research with talking about personas my question now is getting into your job which is how does the research reflect on performance of a company's products does it always work in investing in this process that's a really good question and i think it depends on the day you catch me to my my answer to that um i would say that yes by and large it does but i think it also depends on what stage the company is in so if this company is in a very early stage where you're you just have a nascent idea we would encourage we would want everyone to kind of do research from that very state so that you know what you know what you are building has relevance in the market and has user benefits baked into it but i can also see a time where if you are a one or two man or woman show you may not want to have like you may just not have the opportunity to do a ton of research yourself i mean most excellent entrepreneurs would do that but i won't be surprised if some don't and they lead with a vision right so i think there are times when yes maybe research is less relevant but having said that the moment you become of a relatively larger size you do have to kind of have research baked into it because 
on one hand, you are trying to keep the wheels going so that yes, your existing business does well, but you always have to know what you're going to do next because the production time itself can be anywhere between like couple of months to couple of years. So that's where I think research starts becoming incredibly powerful where we actually future-proof the business by kind of identifying these big opportunities that emerge from within the organization, but also looking at what is happening in the world around. And I think if most organizations which are mature and still didn't do it, I do think they are missing a picture on where to go next. While I studied research, uh, you know, sociology popularized this entire concept of focus group discussions, getting people together, conducting a group discussion. In fact, I remember this campaign of Motorola, which was right before the iPhone 7 launch uh, called as Skip the 7, where they did, you know, focus group conversations with uh, people asking about what is it that they want in the next phone. However, now I see that there's a lot of discussion against focus groups as a method for research. Do you think the concept has any merit? And in what kind of situations would you use it? Yeah, I think it's a good question because um, if I think about focus groups, I think where focus groups really help is where you are trying to get multiple people of similar backgrounds to kind of agree to like, you know, like a, like open it up as a problem, have a discussion and then agree to some next steps. But if you're looking for diversity of opinion, then a focus group is probably not ideal because, you know, people do feel shy about having people, others who might contradict what they are saying. So I think it still has merit. It has merit when you are trying to kind of align people more than gathered different opinions. I must say we do a lot less of them these days, for sure. And the reason being for it is, um, you know, due to the kind of sophistication of other tools like DScout, where we where you can do diary studies very easily, or even just like remote usability testing and so on, this the need to spend like time with five people all at the same time has kind of reduced because you can set up a task and then have people do it in their own time async and still get the data for your analysis and you know like insights generation pretty much at the same time so in many ways focus groups used to be very helpful because of the convenience factor and now i think a lot of technologies provide you the same convenience which may be one of the reasons why we can see a little bit of a decline in that method. So whether focus group or technology, when we keep talking about them, Saswati, one of the one of the curiosities that I have is the qualitative and quantitative data that we collect um, as researchers, it, it can be easily manipulated by cognitive biases. So the, the question that I have is how do you manage to avoid these biases? I think that's a tough one because I don't really know if you ever manage to completely erase the biases, to be honest. Like, I think, you know, every researcher quantitatively or qualitatively has some idea about what they are looking for. I think 
you know, if if like one thing we encourage great researchers to think about is what would you want to do with this data at the end of it, right? So that like we know that the data that you are trying to collect is of the right amount, the right quantity, the right quality. So I don't think you ever completely remove cognitive bias. So you know what you are trying to deliver at the end of it. And then you kind of do the research and see how your hypothesis is supported or not. But what I do think like a really, really great researcher does is they know how to check their bias. So they know how to go into a session with a neutral attitude and not get worked up when let's say the user is saying completely something different from what your original position is. And they are very good listeners. So they know how to kind of listen for the nuances that the, the user might be talking about and pull that out. So I, I think that's what it is, which is that you try to reduce your bias by trying to be neutral, keep an open mind about the new things that come up. But at the same time, you also sort of write down that what are the known risks of your method or of your like method of, of your actual research so that someone else, when they are reading it, they know that, you know, this person has come into this setup of conducting research with a few pre-known biases or pre-known limitations. And um, that's something we do quite extensively in research, which is we identify upfront that, look, these were some of the constraints. We know that there's not maybe enough gender representation or there's not enough like, you know, representation of lower literacy users. There's not enough representation of large organizations that we could talk to and so on. So just marking that out explicitly and calling that out explicitly often helps to balance that. So one of the other things um, is that I was reading an article uh, about democratization of research and your opinion on it. In fact, democratization is a powerful word, empowering everyone, making things accessible. Most of the user experience education, especially in India, sees user research as a part of its curriculum. Now, do you think having a specialized research course altogether will benefit the industry and create better research? Absolutely. Like, I, I think after doing this for a while, I have no doubt about that. Like, I, I think one of the challenge we face as hiring managers these days is everyone seems to have such a broad and open-ended education that they can do everything. They can do some design, they can do some content strategy, they can do some research. But if I look very closely at what exactly is the thing that you do really, really well, it's very, very hard to find. And it takes an exceptional early career professional to know what they do very, very well. So I would say yes, if, if like, you know, if we like the way we see it is um, research is growing, the need for research is growing. So just kind of having some people who are doing this in a dedicated fashion where they come out of a course, knowing the competencies, the skill sets very well, I think that would create a huge amount of value in the sort of the job space, because then we know that, yes, these are the people who have put in the work, they have done the projects, let's say over three years of graduation. So they're not starting from scratch. We are not hiring them 
that based on like their potential, but we are really hiring them for a demonstrate, demonstrated sort of experience that they have. Interesting. So, Saswati, moving from, you know, your research background to one of the most exciting background that I feel in your career, which is that of being an intercultural coach. And I, I think in this globalized world, it's extremely relevant. So we heard you talk about uh, global markets and your next uh, big bets. You know, I'm, I'm intrigued about understanding that how large companies, whether like Google, Uber, or even smaller startup, tweak their products to make them culturally relevant. And how do they benefit from it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think this is just like, this is just a trend that we are going to see accelerate more and more. So one of my favorite examples, perhaps of this is um, from Uber, where we, you know, we know that in India, for instance, that there is just a culture of calling like a car agency, right? That you just call them and then you book the car for a day or more based on what you need. And um, the reason people do that is that they don't own a car. And um, this, this phenomena was really interesting for us to understand from a research perspective, because um, what we realized was that, well, if you are going to be able to like hire a car, rent a car for the whole day, that's actually a lot more income for a driver, which is great, which is what we ultimately want to offer them. So in many ways, what the learning we took away from that was that, look, here, where is, what, is the, what is the benefit that Uber can offer? The benefit that Uber can offer is that this phenomena of re- like hiring a car already exists. It's very well socially embedded. So if we do something, it has to come with a twist. And the twist that a company like Uber can provide is that instead of having to book that car, like at least like 24, if not 48 hours before, you can book it in that moment and we will have someone available to you within the next two to three hours. So just the amount of convenience that we could then go ahead and offer you increases very very significantly so you don't really have to like pre-plan your outing for you know several days ahead and some this insight in particular came from india where we knew that people were reserving cars and you know taking it out for their own purposes so that's kind of like what we as researchers try to kind of look for more and more which is um which is less about like identifying completely different and brand new opportunities, but more about what it already exists in the culture and how do we elevate that experience by making it easier, more affordable, more familiar over time. So when you talk about especially a country like India, uh, cultural landscape of a place obviously affects the way products are created and consumed, especially in our country, in, in India, with this immense diversity that we have in every nook and corner how do you create for inclusion yeah that's a great question it definitely is um there's no easy answer to achieving great inclusion so i think it definitely is and i can't say that you know there's any corporate that i have seen 
who's able to nail this 100%. I think what ends up happening is we try to conduct, whether it's research, design, uh, marketing strategy, promotions, in a way that it will be inclusive of the vast majority. And then, you know, you do have options of like marketing things more locally in different ways so that it speaks the local language and the local nuance a little bit more. But 100% inclusion is, I think, almost impossible to achieve. So where we end up landing is we look for a little bit more of the universal values that exist even amongst us Indians and figuring out that is that enough? Like, I mean, have we been able to nail a few things that matter to all of us? most of the time and it is possible to find those values so yes we are a tremendously diverse countries and you know like we we have all this opportunity to do more things that are locally hyper hyper locally relevant but i think we are still a bit far away from that extent of hyper localization because it's very difficult for a business to scale when you start customizing at every city level or every state level. So to some extent, I think that could be our next big opportunity, which is how do you do this incredibly well and you know, be successful maybe in specific states. Maybe you don't have to be like a pan-India player. You can be really incredibly successful in Maharashtra, in you know, Karnataka, wherever you want. And that's enough because those states also have very sizable populations. So Saswati, can you give me an example in one of the companies that you worked with or any other company that you've known uh, which has done this inclusion quite well, which is which has addressed this beautifully? Yeah, I mean, if I if I think about it, I think most of the companies I have worked with try to do this well, right? So I think if I look at it, like for example, like let's let's talk about like you know search. Let's talk about Google search for a second. The whole experience of finding information as it stands on the internet today is kind of similar. So it's not like vastly different in one part of India than the other. But where, for example, the team at that time was trying to make it a little bit more like prominent for some group of users, for instance, is we knew that there was a very significant amount of Hindi-speaking users who were coming online, who were trying to find information that would be available in the local language. So Google then set up like a partnership with Hindi publishers in India to put more Hindi content online, right? And that's one way of sort of going from an English-speaking India to a more sort of local language-speaking India and finding those information online. So in many ways, like the opportunity for most of these companies is to kind of keep doing that more and more, right? So they know how to do it, they have done it, and they have seen the benefits. So the question is like, how do you now do that for every other language in India, or at least like the main national languages at a minimum, because India also has tons of languages. So I think most of these organizations, the way they roll out their services, they have that idea and then just like the very fine tuning of it, it takes time, it takes a while to sort of be able to deliver that at a scale of the country. 
So while we are talking about diversity, inclusion, you know, multiple languages that you just spoke about, uh, if, if we talk about the field of design, understanding the human mind in depth has been the crux of this field. So while we keep using the words like empathy, I'm just curious to know that do you think studying psychology in depth would aid in the process of designing? For sure. I mean, I think the right courses which I think help us do design better are several, right? Like, I think there's not like any one particular course. So I, I think like it's about the team at the end of the day, which is if you can have a group of people who come with different backgrounds among themselves and then apply those backgrounds to solving a problem, I think that's what makes the end, the end result successful. So yes, you can study psychology and then you will know like, you know, like how, how can you sort of prompt users in the right direction? How can you take care of their mental well-being? How can you not sort of grab, overwhelm their attention? and so on. But I also think it's equally important to understand the sociology aspect of it, which is how might different people at different levels of society use something. And similarly, how might like, you know, like, like, uh, someone who has more of an aesthetics background, whether it's like architecture or fine arts, how might they come to the same problem and think about simplifying the concept, the concept that the team might come up with in a way that is actually visually accessible for the end user at the end of the day. So I think for me, it's it's about you can do any of these courses. There's not one clear winner course as such in them. Psychology is a safe bet for sure, but where the magic happens is when you are able to sort of bring people with these different skill sets to look at the problem holistically. Interesting. And while we were talking about education and courses, at Avantika University, we've coined a term called as designering. Uh, we want to ask you how technology is aiding the process in research uh, is a field so dependent on human interaction, can can user research one day be automated completely? I think it can be automated to a great extent. Um, whether it can be fully automated, let's see the next decade. Um, I think there's a lot of part about the current way of how we do user research, which is possible to automate. So for instance, like, you know, as you work in large organizations, one of the areas which I think is very ripe for automation is just like testing out the initial designs that we generate. So those we already have, like we already have tools which where we can have the design set up, we can have the users join asynchronously tap through things, record their thoughts as they are doing it. So you don't really need a researcher to necessarily sit through and do it. They can if they want to, but it's not necessary. So some of the more sort of usability testing, I think we are already starting to automate some of that. Now, where I think it'll be hard to automate is to really look at the big problems, which is like you still will need research to understand where to go the how to go to something could be figured out in a little bit less of a researchy way, but the where to go, I think that will still remain an open question. 
and that's why like if you kind of look at my sort of write-up on like you know the democratization of research i think we will come to a standpoint where we want people to be able to think about like the where question and the how can be taken care of by others so knowing the larger society directions knowing the macroeconomics knowing uh, to your point how the product engineering works and how that can be made more useful to an end user that's where i think most researchers in the future will create value so this brings us saswati to our last segment um, on our podcast which we call as a quickie takeaway segment it's it's called as gyanvyan where um, we're going to throw certain questions to you in a rapid fire manner and we would like to hear your top of the mind views so, so are you ready for this okay let's do it so saswati what do you prefer a multicultural experience in india or a global exposure what's your choice a mix of both if I, if that's an option <laughs> okay and why or do i have to choose one or do i have to choose one i can choose one if you force me to no uh, we'll 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 go with your hybrid answer but i what what intrigues me more is why yeah i i'm happy to say that um a mix of both because i don't think i would have the career that i have today if i didn't have the tremendous multicultural exposure from india at the very beginning of it and now having had that i see a lot of my role now is to push for that kind of a perspective in global organizations so that what they might be building from america from europe even from asia is informed by that diversity that i experienced as i started my career okay that's interesting so which one do you think has a better user experience a physical book or kindle or maybe audible as well no for me a physical book for sure okay and since you since you did your education in literature your favorite author uh, that you recommend everyone to read oh my god that is very hard so it's hard because you have way too many favorite authors Yeah, I have way too many favorite authors. Yes. Okay, so you could give us multiple of them. Yeah, okay, that's great. Yes, I can give you multiple of them. Um on the fiction side, I am a huge fan of Jane Austen and Amitabh Ghosh from India. On the non-fiction side, I I really like Atul Gawande who has been writing about how to handle death and mortality. Um I also like just like general authors who write about cinema a lot so one of the recent books i read it's called unquiet by lynn ulman and she talks about like just having grown up with ingmar bergman her father who's a very famous filmmaker in his last days so i'm like i am i can keep giving you names but all of these people prop up immediately and um, just as a fun anecdote i wrote my mphil thesis on jk rowling and satyajit ray and harry potter and feluda and the comparative uh, angles in childhood literature so they are also huge favorites as well wow that's that's an interesting study that you did a thesis that we would want to understand little maybe offline so moving from there to our next rapid fire uh can you share with us an age that you would want to be permanently be a part of 
age as in historical age or just numeric age? Your numeric age. I would be pretty happy to be 25, let's say. Okay, and why? Um, the reason being for that is it's an age where you've kind of learned a little bit, like, you know, you're, you're kind of beyond your parental controls and stuff. So you, you don't have to listen to everyone. And then yet you are a little bit still away from figuring everything out in life. So you're in this really interesting mix of, I know I can take care of myself and I know a few things in life, but I also don't know a lot of things in life. So I like that kind of uncertainty and just like figuring things out. The next one is where you have to fill in the blank. You have never dash. Okay. So I have never ran a marathon. Okay. And if you were a, a user experience product, which one would you want to be? A Google search engine, an Uber app to book cab, or a WhatsApp messenger app? Um, I'll be a Google search engine. Why? I love like just being able to find information. Like it's it's one of the things I love, which is like, how do you kind of find out all about the world by just typing in a small browser or even these days asking the assistant questions and find all sorts of random new things which you never knew before. So yeah, I, I like that very much. And my last one, since you are a global leader and a very busy individual, would you rather have 50 hours in a day or be able to finish your work at the rate of a two times faster speed? Neither. Like, if the, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I'm putting you in trouble. No, um, no, absolutely. I would say neither. I don't want 50 hours a day for sure. I think 24 hours is just fine. And neither do I want to do 2x um, speed work because I think a lot of my work right now is about being able to do less rather than do more. So, you know, like a big part, I think, of my role is about simplifying things, doing few things well, and doing them very consciously and mindfully. So neither speed nor more time would help. It's just about focus. Super. And and I don't think we could have ended this session on a better note. Saswati, it's been a pleasure hosting you on Avantika Designering Series. Thank you so much for doing this for us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And I hope, you know, if anyone has any questions after they hear this episode, I'm happy to be contacted. And I look forward to hearing any feedback if people share any thoughts after they listen to it. Thank you so much, Saswati. Hey there, we hope you enjoyed our show. Do write to us on ads at the rate avantika.edu.in. We look forward to your opinions, feedbacks and suggestions of speakers you would like us to host on this show. Do tune in our channel next week on Wednesday for a new story on Hubhopper or wherever you get your podcast from. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter.